0: God's been good. We're thankful for all of his blessings. We're going to let the preacher come up. And uh, Brother Reed, if you would come at this time, we sure appreciate him being here and traveling this way. They did a meeting down in Wilton um, last week a teen meeting and they had a fantastic time down there and we thank god for what god has been doing through their family traveling around the nation so tell us a little bit brother about your ministry uh before you get in the message okay. and just let us know what god's doing and we are so thankful that you made it here yes sir. god bless you thank you he, he by the way was born in maine too right so uh we got some things in common and we thank god for that he's good if he's from maine amen amen so amen
1: Last week they said they weren't going to hold that against me. So, oh boy, I don't know what that means. Uh, last week, let me put it this way. I don't know if any of you, any of you follow professional sports? One. two and a half, three. a half. Three. Okay. So, when I, growing up in Maine, I grew up in a household that just loved sports. And so being in Maine, which is New England, like it or not, it, I come by it honestly, we found ourselves rooting for all things Boston. So that's the Boston Red Sox. Boston Celtics, New England Patriots even, I don't even know if that's, can you be a Christian root for the Patriots, I don't even know if that's possible, but I, I do, and Boston Bruins, and so now I'm in New York, and yesterday we went over to the Hicks Orchard, and Gilbert was wearing uh, a Boston, had the uh, wind pants with the Boston logo, and a jacket with the Boston logo, and a hat with the Boston logo, and my wife said, is this okay, so we're behind enemy lines, but we're going to try it. <laughs> So I I do understand where I'm at, and I I understand I need to be careful with those things. In fact, last week I I mentioned to some of teenagers that I was a New England fan, and immediately I think I just turned off half the crowd. so I need to be careful with those things. Okay, uh, take your Bible, go to Acts chapter 9, and then while you're turning, I'm just going to try to give a little bit of a, maybe a bio, just explain to you here a a little bit about us. The picture was up on the... the, uh, the screen earlier, and we do have uh, prayer cards. These cards are, are right after we started, so these are about three years old, um, maybe just a little less than three years. Gilbert here is only about a month old in this picture, and um, we're, we're still trying to figure some things out. When we printed our business or our prayer cards, we printed like 2,000 of them, and we've gone through about 300. So <laughs> we've learned that probably need to not do so many uh, next time, but we'll be printing off new ones here in a little while. So, my wife and I, uh, I was born in, in Maine. Uh, my dad had been in ministry for a number of years. In fact, he pastored for about three years. He pastored a church uh, in Smyrna, New York, which is just a few hours south of here. And, and so there were some early years uh, uh, in ministry I experienced there. And then he moved back to Maine and was a part of several different churches there in the, in the state. And so I, I grew up with somewhat of a ministry mindset. And yet I was telling a pastor yesterday in in my uh, growing up years uh, the, the Christ life, uh, the spirit-filled life, in other words, the fact that the scripture teaches that Christ abides in you and you abide in him, and John 15 explains that if you're abiding in Christ, oh, the power that is possible, and if you're not abiding in Christ, you can do nothing, that theology uh, was not in our paradigm, and so growing up, our, our mentality of Christianity was really just, well, try harder, just do a little bit more for Jesus, and boy, that sounds good, but it doesn't work. And so we lived a very much a discouraging Christian life. And when my, one of my older sisters, I'm one of eight kids, one of my older sisters went off to Bible college and God began to radically change her life And so my dad, recognizing there was something there, uh, we'd heard there's an evangelist that had come through our church and begun to teach and preach on the spirit-filled life. And my dad got a hold of that truth and radically changed our family. And so he then asked my older brother and I if we'd consider going uh, to Bible college. Uh, I mean, he didn't force us to, but he asked me. That was his heart. That was his desire. And it was the last thing I wanted to do because from a little child, I knew somehow, I don't know how, but somehow I knew I was called to preach. So if I go to Bible college, I'm going to have to surrender to Jesus Christ. And uh, so I fought that, and I resisted that, but uh, in a decision of to honor my dad, I chose to go to Bible college, and I went there kicking and screaming in a sense, and uh, God in his gracious mercy, they, they started the school year with, many Bible colleges will do this, I started the school year with a revival meeting, and I think it was about the third night in, God just brought the hammer down through the word, the, the preacher knew nothing about my story, knew nothing about where I was at, but God did, and he dealt with me that night, and so I came back, went to the, to the back, and sat down with a counselor, and and uh, we sat there for two and a half hours as I wrestled. I knew the decision was on the table surrender to Jesus or, or, or walk away. And, and I, I didn't want to walk away without Jesus, but I didn't want to surrender to Jesus because I had a warped view of who God is. And I thought if, if you surrender to Jesus, doesn't He make your life miserable? Doesn't He send you to Africa and make you beat snakes and boil water and sift your flour and live in a miserable condition? Doesn't He do that? Because I just, I, I had a warped view of who God is. I did not really believe that he unconditionally cared for me as much as I cared for me. In fact, he does more, but I didn't realize that. And so finally I came to a place of surrender. And through that process, oh, I have come to discover he is far better than I ever thought. God can make my life miserable whether I surrender to him or not. And so, but in, surre- but in surrendering... Boy, he's given me great blessings. And I'm telling you, I would not trade what we are doing for anything. I'm not doing this just because I feel like I have to. I'm doing it because I I long to be a preacher. And God has made me that, and I'm certainly grateful for that. So went through Bible college there in Wisconsin graduated an undergrad in 16 and I did seminary graduated in 18. And then my wife and I, she grew up in Wisconsin. Uh, we met in college. We got married right out of uh, out of seminary. So the summer of 18 and then in the summer or fall of 19, we started traveling. The Lord gave us a little child, Gilbert, and a sense, given us another one, Ginger. And so we've been on the road just about three years. And uh, COVID was a unique year. 2020 was a challenge. But the Lord took care of us all through that. And the Lord has done miracle after miracle after miracle for us. Again, just confirming, I'm leading. I'm in. in I'm in what I've led you to do. Um, I can't explain how the fact that I am 30 years old and we've only been on the road three years, how we've had two years now full schedules. Next year, 2023 is a full schedule. We've got meetings scheduled all the way into 25. I can't explain that except to say, God and His divine goodness is leading us. Um, and one simple testimony would be that trailer that's parked out there. That's a 2017. Uh, Forest River Sandpiper. I could, not afforded, I could not afford to buy that, but the Lord provided. That truck is a 2022 F-350. We ordered it brand new from the factory. The Lord provided the money to pay for it with cash. Amen. So last year in the calendar, if I could tell the whole story, it would take the, the entire time of the message, and I, we don't have that time. But in the calendar year of 2021, the Lord provided $95,000 to pay for that. I can't explain that except to say it was a divine miracle. So what that means is we have the opportunities because we don't have a $1,200 monthly payment on the truck and trailer uh, that gives us an opportunity to go places and do things and truly give of ourselves and there's no need or concern uh, for the financial payment. In fact, last summer we spent an entire uh, week doing uh, tent meetings with a a church planner out in Iowa and he couldn't pay us anything. Well, he he gave us a little bit of money for gas, but it didn't matter. Because the Lord takes care of us, and so I'm just so grateful for how the Lord has done that over and over and over again. And I would love to be able to tell the full story. And if, if you want to catch me later and get some more of the details, I'd I'd love to give that. But uh, so just that it, it, by way of introduction, that's just a little bit about us. And so from here, we'll leave uh, Wednesday morning. We're going to drive, start our way over to to uh, Michigan. We got meetings to finish out our year. We're in Michigan. See, Michigan, Ohio, and then Wisconsin, and then we'll, uh, we will spend the holidays up uh, near Wisconsin, so we're grateful for that. Okay, we're in Acts chapter 9, is where we're going to be at here this, this morning. As I was praying about what the Lord would have for us, uh, this passage here, the Lord has been radically changing my thinking and helping me so much uh, from this text. This, this account in Acts chapter 9, we would know this as the salvation account, the salvation story of the man named Saul, who would later be called Paul. And I think probably all of us are, are familiar with this passage. Earlier this summer, I was in a conversation with uh, uh, one of my siblings, and we were talking about the way that God works. And she made a comment, my, my older sister made a comment in our conversation. She made this comment, she said, God is always a pursuing God. And that rattled my thinking a little bit because in some of the way that I find myself naturally thinking, I think of Christianity often as I pursue after God and if I convince him that I really mean business, if I go after him with all my heart, then after I've initiated to him, he will in turn respond to me. So really feeling that the brunt of my, my Christian experience is really laying on my shoulders and it's my responsibility uh, to do the prayer and then he answers. It's my responsibility to seek him and then he reveals himself to me. It's my responsibility to go out soul winning and then maybe he'll lead someone to the Lord through that. And I found that my view of Christianity was very much all resting on me. And after she made that comment, and she pointed to several different texts, and it was in a brief conversation. I had a week where we were—it uh, was a slow week—and so I had some time to be doing some extra study. And, and I texted her, and I said, "Give." I said, "What were those passages that you pointed to?" And she texted them to me. And I started to do some study, and God began to totally uh, change my thinking. In conjunction with this, I was reading the biography of a man named Oswald Chambers. I don't know if anybody recognizes that name, Oswald Chambers. But in reading his biography, the Lord completely just uh, adjusted my thinking. I was preaching at a camp this summer where I did an eight-part series on this topic, and the issue is understanding who God is. Now that's a simple statement, and we would all—if if that's all I said—we'd all say, "Oh, that's that's good. We want to know who God is." But the truth is, most of us do not know who God is. We find ourselves focusing on what God does and what I am required to do, but we miss the fact—we miss who God is in other words the scripture in Luke chapter 19 verse 10 says for the son of man if you know the passage say it with me for the son of man is come to and to seek and to save that which was lost when we look at that passage we say hey look at that that's what God does he seeks after people and he saves people boy we're so grateful he seeks people and he saves people but church family did you know that's not just what God does it's who he is In other words, it's not like, well, he seeks some people and he saves some people. No, his very core, his very nature is a pursuing God. And who his very nature is, what he is made to do is saving. Also, people can definitely reject him. But from Jesus' person, he is a seeking God and he is a saving God. You say, why is that important? Well, I want to tell a story. Uh, The the article, the um, biography I was reading of Oswald Chambers, if you you don't know anything about him, he was uh, born in the late 1800s and had a ministry in England uh, in the early 1900s. He was a Scotsman, but uh, his father had moved to London when he was just a boy, and so much of his growing up years was in London. Uh, When Oswald Chambers was 27, he he had believed all through his college years that he was supposed to be an artist, and in fact, that's what he was training to be. He went to art school and things such as that. At 27, God began to deal with him and call him to preach. And at 27, he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Oswald Chambers would die at age 43. So he only had 16 years of effectiveness, and yet he is one of the greatest uh, uh, authors uh, of of books today. His book, My Utmost for His Highest, is the number one best-selling devotional of all time. And so Oswald Chambers, a great man of God, in fact, he started traveling around the country, traveled to America, traveled to Japan, was doing preaching, a well-sought-after preacher. He had a Bible college in London. But when World War I broke out, uh, Oswald uh, yielded himself, surrendered, uh, volunteered with the YMCA, and the YMCA sent him to Cairo, Egypt. And he would spend um, the majority of World War I in Cairo, and, and he would uh, minister to the soldiers. And he had an incredible walk with God. It would be, in fact, in Cairo uh, where he would die. I believe it was a ruptured appendix, and they didn't catch it fast enough, and he died at, four, at age 43. But in that journey, he did a lot of writing and preaching, and, and the, his biographer tells a story of while he was in Egypt, his wife had come to join him, and, and there was a good coworker, a, a friend of theirs, a dear friend of theirs that was dying and was uh, in the hospital, and so Oswald and his wife, uh, her nickname was Biddy, and, and so the two of them went to the hospital to visit this woman. Again, she was a dear friend of theirs, someone that they loved and cared for. They went and visited her in the hospital, and while they were in the hospital, it, it, it didn't seem good, and, and they prayed for her, and, and they came home. And, and while they're at home, Biddy is, she's there at the, at the kitchen sink, and she just quietly makes the comment. She says, I, I wonder what God will do. To which Oswald responded, "I don't care who God is, or I don't care what God does. I care who God is. And the biographer made this statement. It said, at first glance, it would seem that that statement, I don't care what God does, it would seem that that statement was very callous, cold, and unfeeling. And yet, he writes that if you knew Oswald, you would know he cared very much for that woman. But what Oswald understood was, sometimes what God does is confusing. But who God is, is never confusing. That statement really helped me. Because I began to realize I have focused a lot on what God does, but I've missed the very person, Jesus Christ. I've missed who he is. And so what I want to do here in Acts chapter 9 is to look at through this passage and discover. Let's not look at this passage and just see what God does, though we're going to see plenty that he does. Let's look at this passage and try to understand what does the conversion of Saul tell us about who God is? Because in this passage we see that he is a pursuing seeking, initiating God. And that is that point I would like to try to prove here this morning. So look with me in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Here is the account, the surprising conversion of Saul. The scripture says in verse 1, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether there were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And the Lord said unto him, "Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do." And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, "Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire of the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and he hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to the saints at Jerusalem, and here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on his name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. If you're familiar with this text, we are introduced to the man Saul. Of course, we knew of him previously because of the, the murder of Stephen, but here's the very first time we're going to get a deeper glimpse into the man Saul. And I will tell you, he's not a pretty man, he, or I shouldn't say pretty, uh, he's not a friendly fellow. We're introduced to him here and the scripture is revealing to us that this fella, he's an unregenerate, he's an unsaved man, he wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ. In fact, he believes that Jesus Christ is ruining his life, he's ruining his religion. So this man, Saul, is determined by whatever means possible to destroy the name Jesus Christ and to persecute all who claim the name Jesus Christ. This man, Saul, has legal authority for persecution. So the text is telling us, and Saul, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples, he went to the high priest and and and, and desired of him letters to Damascus. So basically what he has here is he has the legal right... He has the documentation that he can go down to Damascus and he can take all of the followers of Jesus Christ, anyone that he finds. And we don't know to what level he was persecuting them as far as physical suffering, but at least he's dragging them to jail. And we know because of the previous chapter, uh, he, he, or in, in Acts chapter 7, that he is all about the death of these uh, followers of Jesus Christ. So at this point, Saul wants everything to do with the destruction of Christianity, if you were God, what would you do with Saul? You know what I would do with Saul? I'd cut him off, and I'd send him to damnation in hell because he deserves it, and truly he does. But he's trying to. Per- if I was God, he's trying to persecute my name. He hates my followers. I don't need a man like that, and I'd cut him off if I could. But that's not who Jesus is, and I'm very grateful for that. Because you know what Jesus does? You know what God the Father does? Because it's his very heart. He chooses to seek after Saul. Not cutting his losses. No, he seeks after Saul. And the scripture reveals to us that as Saul is on his way to Damascus. Look at verse 3. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he, being Saul, fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, calling by name, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Imagine this, Saul is now laying on his back. Whether he fell off a camel, off a horse, or or he was walking and just fell to the ground, we don't know. But Saul is now laying there, looking up into this bright, shining light, so bright and so strange and abnormal that the man is now quivering in fear on the ground. And he hears out of the blinding light, he hears his voice. Saul, and the question is, why are you persecuting me? At that point, that question, I'm sure, is stimulating in the brain of Saul. Who is this? And so this is what he cries out. He says, uh, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. What, that, what, what would that have done to Saul's soul? That's the name he hates. That's the name he detests. And if he could destroy the name Jesus Christ, he would. And yet Jesus Christ, having the opportunity to destroy the name Saul, doesn't he calls him in kind compassion and so there jesus speaks to him and says i am jesus whom thou persecutest now think about that church family what does that tell you about the very character of your jesus christ have you ever experienced someone lying about you someone hating you someone spreading rumors about you maybe you've never felt experienced physical persecution where a man comes to you and maybe lays one out across your jaw but maybe you and I have experienced what it's like for someone not to like us. And, and what's your retaliation? What's your feeling towards that person? When they treat you, when they mistreat you, and when, when they're unkind to you, you find yourself maybe getting bitter, uh, maybe getting resentful. Uh, and, and yet Jesus Christ does not. Instead, he pursues. And he comes to Saul and says, "I am Jesus whom you are persecuting." And this is the phrase I find so fascinating. He says to Saul, "It's hard for thee, Saul. To kick against the pricks. Now, what does that phrase tell us? It tells us that Jesus has been pursuing Saul for quite some time. He, in his divine goodness, has been seeking after a man who wants nothing to do with him, and he, in his divine goodness, has been sending circumstances, situations to prod and poke and direct Saul back to himself because Jesus is a pursuing God. What are the pricks here? Uh, I'm sure we've all read this phrase, and and maybe even some of you are aware of this, but when he says the pricks, this is the, the picture, the idea of an ox goad. So this would have been a long slender stick with a pointed end, and a cowman, a cattleman, a farmer would have used this to give the, uh, the oxen, the bovine there, a, a jab in the back and the flanks and, and trying to tell them this is the direction. So if, the, cow, if the, the cattleman wants him to go that way, he'd, he'd give him a sharp, hard shove right there and, and indicate to the cow, I'm directing you that way, and you feel that, that pain, that pressure? It's because I'm, I'm pushing you that direction. That's the picture that's here. Is there anybody here who's ever worked with cattle Anybody ever worked with cattle? Okay, one in the back, okay, two. Uh, three, all right. Um, I've not done a lot with cattle. My grandfather and my, farm, my father were both dairy farmers, and they have told me plenty of stories. Cattle are some of the dumbest animals I've ever been around. Could, would you all agree? The only animal I've ever seen that's dumber than a cow is a, a sheep, actually. Sheep are some of the dumbest animals I've ever seen. And, in fact, it encourages me when the Scripture in Isaiah calls us sheep. Uh, I think we probably ought to apologize to the sheep for that. Uh, but a cow is an incredibly... It's, it's, a very, it's an animal of, of, of habit, uh, not really a, an animal of great brains. And so uh, my grandfather has told me before stories when he was a dairy farmer. He would often carry a nail in his pocket because if the cow... If he could not get the cow's attention, uh, he would take that nail out and he'd jam it into the back flank of the cow. And, and maybe some ladies who are a little more sensitive say, oh, that's so cruel, but the cow would just kind of be like, oh, you talking to me? <laughs> you know, they're, just, they're not... They're not very smart animals. In fact, my grandfather told me at one point there was a cow that was heading straight for him and, and, and they're trying to wave the cow off and the cow is not listening, not noticing. And my grandfather, all he had in his hand was a two-by-four and he literally broke a two-by-four over the face of the cow and the cow just kind of stopped and, oh, sorry, missed my turn. You know, They're just dumb animals and so you have to use a prod to sometimes get their attention. Of course, cattlemen today, oftentimes those prods are electric but the idea is you, by force, mmm. Get this point across so that the cow knows, oh, you're trying to get me to go this direction. And this is what Jesus is saying. Saul, have you felt it? I have a direction I want you to go. And I know it's for your best. Saul, I am all for you. Though you hate me, I'm all for you. And I have been trying with everything I can to get your attention. And you've been kicking against my pursuit. Now, we don't know what the pricks were, except I think... Probably it's safe to say Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is in the place of dying, it was the prodding and the pricking of Jesus Christ. Saul is there watching Stephen die, and he's not dying like any normal man. No, Saul. Uh, excuse, me, excuse me, Stephen stands there before the Jewish council, and he preaches with authority, filled with the Holy Ghost, and he there preaches a, a message of boldness and great conviction. In fact, the Scripture tells us that all the men were pricked in the heart. I think it's safe to say that Saul was likely also feeling the pricks and the prods, as uh, as Stephen, quoting and preaching from the Old Testament, tells them, "Look, you all have crucified the very one who loves you and came to save you," and they're pricked in their heart and they gnash on him and they run on him. And there Saul, consenting to the death, hey guys, give me your coats, do your dirty work, I'm all for it. He takes the coats there and watches, I imagine with a sneer, as Stephen is thrust to his knees and as Stephen looks up into heaven, he does not scream and cry curses. He, just like Christ, calls out, Father, lay not this charge against them. Like Jesus hanging from the cross who said, Father, forgive them. Stephen also prays in like fashion. In fact, looking up into heaven, he calls out and says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. If Saul hates Jesus and if, that, if Saul doesn't even think Jesus exists, Stephen has just declared his deity, has just declared his resurrection. And I'm imagining that Saul's feeling it in his soul. The pricks have continued and they're going harder and harder, and he's resisted and he's pushed back, and he does not want anything to do with Jesus. I'm just telling you, church family, oftentimes Jesus is pricking. And prodding feels like pain. And there's too many people who have left church and there's too many people uh, who don't understand who God is and they feel like there's a difficult situation in my life. This doesn't make sense. Uh, why would God, if he's a loving God, allow this into my life? And it's God actually saying, no, it's not. I'm not making difficulties for you for difficulty's sake. I'm trying to pursue you. I'm trying to prod you. And there Saul is now laying on his back as God is telling you, Saul, I've been pursuing you. I've been pricking you. And there Saul finally gets the attention. God wants Wants me, and we don't know exactly at what point in the chapter he makes the conversion decision, but clearly by the middle part of the, part of the chapter, Saul is now a converted man. I believe probably Saul, by the time he gets up off the ground, he has placed his trust in Jesus Christ, but regardless, he, he lays there before the Lord, says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And God tells him to go into the city. Arise, verse 6, he says, arise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. So at this point, Saul gets up off the ground, and he can't see. He's blind. And so men begin, they they direct him, and they lead him by the hand. They take him into the city, and now he enters into Damascus, and he sits there for three days without eating and drinking, waiting for something, waiting for someone to come and explain to him. He's a different man. At this point, he believes in Jesus, but he doesn't know what to do, and God will send Ananias. We'll look at that in just a moment, but God will send Ananias to him to show him, look, God's got a vision for you. But at this point, by the time we read, I believe, by the time we read verse 10... And I or excuse me, Saul is a saved man. Now let me just ask you, if you were God, I mentioned this earlier, if you were God, would you have pursued Saul? I wouldn't have. But Jesus does. And I'm so grateful for it. In fact, pursuing man is not just what God does, it's who he is. You think about John chapter 3, verse 16. We know this passage for god so loved the world that he gave who wait who gave he did He started the whole process by by God taking the first step, knowing before time and eternity that man was going to rebel against him. He already had made a way. He had already made a a, a provision for a sacrifice. When God uh, so loving the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 tells us, but God commendeth his love. He showed his love. He demonstrated his love to us in that while we we were yet sinners. Who's doing the pursuing? Not the sinners. God showing to man, I am already loving you. Uh, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save. It's telling us Jesus is a pursuing God for salvation. You say, well, that's, I'm certainly glad He does it for salvation. But now that I'm saved, isn't it my responsibility? What does First John tell us? We love Him. Why? Because he first loved us. Look, all throughout our Christian experience, the only reason we've ever pursued God is because he pursued us. The only reason he's ever answered our prayer is because uh, he has already told us, you come to me and ask of me. You say, well, Brother Reed, that's that's Acts chapter 9, and you quoted four verses. Is it anywhere else in the scripture? Yes. What about the Ethiopian eunuch? The Ethiopian eunuch, God is doing a deep work in his heart. He goes to Jerusalem, not not knowing and understanding all that he's seeing, but he's there in his in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, pouring over it, trying to understand what's going on here. What am I missing? And God gets a hold of Philip atten- Philip's attention and says, "I want you to leave here and go to the desert. Why? Because I'm doing a work of pursuit. I'm working on someone. There's someone I'm already going after, and I want Stephen. I want you to join me. And he takes Stephen, or excuse me, he takes uh, Philip and he leads him into the desert, and there he joins him to the chariot, and, and, and Philip is able to lead a man to the Lord. Why? Because Philip's a great evangelist? Because God was already pursuing him. Okay, see, Brother Reed, you just gave us two stories. Are there any more? Mm-hmm. Well, Jonah. If you were Jonah, or excuse me, if you were God, what would you do with Jonah? You know what I would do? I'd say, Jonah, fine, you can run to Tarshish, buddy. Prophets are a dime a dozen. I don't really need you. I'll get another one that's more willing and more useful. But that's not what God does. No, he pursues Jonah. Is it because God had run out of options and Jonah was his only chance? Mm -mm. No, because he wanted Jonah. And he wanted Jonah to know who he was. And so in his pursuit, he sends a storm, doesn't he? And Jonah is thrown overboard, and if Jonah is anything like me, you find yourself thinking, Lord, I don't know about this pursuit stuff. It sure looks like you're trying to kill me. And God is saying, no, I'm pursuing you, my child. And Jonah there, swallowed by the whale, three days in the belly of the whale, and he finally cries out with a a call of repentance, and the whale spits him up on dry ground and says, okay, Jonah, I want you to go work in a city that I'm already at work. Luke chapter 15 is, uh, gives us three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coins, and the parable of the lost boy. And we often uh, hear that text preached about the prodigal son. But did you know all three parables are teaching the exact same truth? Jesus comes and tells them about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. And the shepherd uh, uh, sorry, loses one and he takes the ninety and nine and sets them aside in a safe place so that he can go and pursue the one. There's a 1% of his flock that's lost, and yet he is willing to set aside 99% so he can go after one. That's not how we function. We would often say, well, doesn't, I mean, if I was God, I'd just cut my losses. Hey, I'll just be content with the 99, but that's not who Jesus is. He says, I'm pursuing the one. I'm going after the one. Why? Because pursuing, seeking, initiating, it's not just what God does. It's who he is. And so he, the, the shepherd seeks after the one until he finally doing whatever it takes. He finally finds the one and brings him back to the fold. Uh, there's the story of the 10 coins. The woman's got 10 coins and she loses nine and she doesn't say, hey, this is just the price of doing business. This is just the cost of inflation. No, she pursues after the one, sweeps in the house until she finds the one because the principle that god is teaching is i don't get up give up i don't let go i don't cut my losses look church family too many of us have found ourselves thinking i'm just too far gone for god and that's not who he is you have a wrong view of who jesus is sometimes we have a relative a friend a daughter a son they're wayward they're away from god they're not even saved we say oh man they're probably so far from god i'm sure god's just gonna cut them off that's not who he is the parable of the lost boy Father has two sons, and one has shamed his name, and the father is there on the front doorstep waiting for the day that the boy will crush the hill. And he doesn't sit there on the front porch in his rocking chair saying, ah, the prodigal's returned. Come on, boy, grovel right here. You ask for apology, and maybe we'll think about it in a week. No, that's not what the father does. He pursues He takes off running, the scripture tells us. He runs after the boy. Why? Because the father, illustrated, the heavenly father, illustrated in the human father, is a pursuing God. Jesus illustrates it over and over again. Peter. Peter, he was given, he, he was given all the education he needed. Peter's the one where the Lord Jesus comes and says, Hey, look, you're one of my inner three. You're you're the closest. Peter, James, and John, you're one of the closest to me. And Peter, I want you to know there's coming a day I'm going to die. Oh, no, 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 Lord, that's not possible. Oh, yes, it is possible. Uh, Peter, my kingdom's not for now. Oh, but Lord, we're going to set it up. No, no, Peter, I want you to know I'm going to die, and I'm going to go back, and three days later I'm going to resurrect, and I'm going to go to heaven. He spells it out for Peter. And the day comes when Judas brings the soldiers, and Jesus is arrested, and Peter fails the test brothers and sisters if i was jesus i wouldn't trust peter again with my dog let alone the church i'd say peter i gave you an open book test i gave you the book and the test and i told you ahead of time what was going to be on the test and you still failed it buster i've given you three and a half years of education and you can't stick with me and i am not using you anymore but what does jesus do with peter he pursues him And he goes to the seashore because he knows Peter's going to get discouraged and Peter's going to go fishing and I know where I'm going to find him and I want Peter to know he's not done. And so he goes to the seashore and Peter sees him and there in a a point, I'm, I'm sure, remorse and agony, Peter jumps out of the boat and Jesus says, come and dine. And there he's there at the seashore and Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, I don't... You know I love you, but I feel like such a failure. Peter, I want you to go feed my sheep. See, what Jesus was doing, it was not a snarky, sarcastic comment. It was Jesus pursuing after Peter because, Peter, you're in discouragement. You feel like a failure, and I want you to know I don't view you that way. And I want to use you. What does he do for Thomas? You know what I would do for Thomas? I'd say, Thomas, you doubted me. You weren't in the upper room when I was there showing showing myself off to the upper uh, other disciples. Fine, Thomas, uh, you missed out, buddy. But that's not what Jesus does. Oh, Thomas isn't here, and Thomas is in unbelief? Then I'm going to pursue him so I can prove to him that I'm still good. So he goes to the next time uh, Thomas is with the group, and he comes to Thomas and says, Thomas, I want you to see my arms. I want you to see my side, Thomas. Thomas, He wasn't being sarcastic. He wasn't being mean. He wasn't being, gotcha, Thomas, when he said, Thomas, I want you to come feel. What he was saying to Thomas is, I want you to believe me. And Thomas is restored because Jesus pursues him. History tells us that Thomas would be the very first one to take the gospel into Persia, what would be Iran today. Thomas would die a martyr's death after seeing uh, scores of mosques and and, and Hindu temples being burned to the ground because people had come to Jesus Christ. Thomas is the one who is known in history have taken the gospel into the Far East. Why? Because Jesus wouldn't let Thomas go. He pursued him. All 12 of the disciples, you know, none of the disciples came to Jesus and said, Hey, Rabbi, I heard you're traveling and you're a great teacher. Can you pick me? Every single one of them, Jesus went and said, I want you. Why? Because he's a pursuing God. Boy, that would change the way you pray, wouldn't it? If you believe that God is actually pursuing people in Calvary Baptist Church, that God is actually pursuing people in Granville, New York? See, too often we find ourselves thinking that we've got to go drum up business for God. And, and Lord, if I'm going to be faithful in the ministry, or if I'm going to be faithful in prayer to my family, I want to say, hey, Hey, Lord, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but my, my granddaughter's not walking with you. She's not even, maybe even saved. Hey, Lord, uh, in prayer, uh, Father, I really, could you start working on her? And we've got it backwards. In fact, if we have felt a burden for that person, it's because God is already working. He's drawing us to say, hey, my child, I'm already working in someone's life. I want you to start praying for her. Right, See, too often we go out soul winning. And, and the way we go soul winning is we knock on the door, trying to stick our foot in the door, trying to get business for God and, and trying to reach into someone's life because we feel it's our responsibility to do the pursuit instead of stepping back like Ananias and saying, God, where are you? In fact, when God comes to Ananias, do you know what Ananias' conclusion is? Lord, I doubt you'd be working in Saul's life. Lord, no one would work in Saul's life. And the Lord's saying, Ananias, I actually am, and I want you to join me. And Ananias actually backs up and says, Lord, I don't think this is a good idea. I've heard about this guy. And God says, no, Ananias, I want you to join me in what I am already doing. Go down to Straight Street, go down to Judas' house, and you're going to find a person I'm already working in. uh, Ananias, join me. Brothers and sisters, I am telling you, when God began to do a work in my heart out of this text and realizing, wait a minute, if he is already at work, if he is a pursuing God, that means my role is to not go and just be, just try to be a faithful Christian for God. My role is to find out, God, where are you already at work? And if you can show me where you're already at work, I can be promised that when I enter into his work, it's already going forward, it will go forward, and it will be with power. Instead of me saying, Now, Lord, I want to start a ministry over here. And what do you think of this ministry? Would, would that work for you? Uh, Lord, I want to go knock on his door and just see if anything can happen. What about you? Instead, we are going to him and saying, Father, where are you already at work? I want to join you. As God began to deal with me uh, out of this text, well, let, let me back up. There's a book that I had read when I was a kid by a man by the name of Walter Wilson. The book is called Just What the Doctor Ordered. I don't know if it, has anybody ever heard, heard of that book or read that book? No? Okay. It is a small book. Uh, And it's just soul winning stories, stories like this. Walter Wilson, uh, he was a doctor, but did a lot of preaching. He was traveling one day uh, and and he was the train that he was going to travel on was late. And that morning had been a very early morning, so he hadn't didn't have a chance to shave that morning. And so since the train is late, he now has a chance to go to the barber. And so he says, now, Lord, you just lead me to the place you're already working. And so as he begins to walk down the street, he sees a barber shop and says, okay, Lord, I'm just, I'm just open to see. You direct me and show me where you're already at work. Comes into the barber shop, sits down in the chair, and a little Japanese man walks out from behind a, a barrier there, and he's the, he's the barber and starts walking up to him. And so uh, Walter Wilson poses a question to just try to feel it out. Could God be working in this man's heart? Because God is working at different levels in different people, and the scripture does say the fields are whitened to harvest. That's not just something missionaries talk about. It's actuality. But for some of us, we've not seen a white harvest in a long time. So we conclude, he's probably not at work. It's just too hard. We're in the north. It's 2022. It's post-COVID. God's not at work like he used to be. And we actually deny the very character of God. And so uh, Walter Wilson is sitting there, and he poses a simple spiritual question, trying to see, Lord, might you be at work here? And he asks a question about spirituality, about whether or not the man knew who God was. And the little Japanese barber's his hands begins to quiver. And he steps back from the chair. And the man says, when you walked in, I was standing behind that barrier with a Bible in my hand saying, God, if there's anyone in this city that could explain it to me, send them. Would you say God was already at work? Walter Wilson didn't make that up. He didn't, he didn't come in with his smooth-talking foot in the door. He's got all the, the soul-winning verses memorized. He didn't walk in and just coerce this man to receive Jesus Christ. There are ministries that are patterned that way. And I don't know how many of those people actually genuinely get saved, but all I know is I don't want to be a part of that because I can't make anybody get saved. I'd like to join in where God's already at work. And Walter Wilson leads that man to Christ. Another story, uh, it's the first of the year, he's in New York City, he's, he's going to go to a, one of his customers and sell some products, and he gets to New York City, and he says, uh, this is like 1903, I think it was, and, and he cries out to the Lord in his, in his hotel, and he says, now, Lord, I don't know, this is a large city, six million people or something in that day, Lord, I don't know any of them, lead me to the person you're already at work, and he was a simple, surrendered man, who just listened to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. That day, he's walking down the street, on his way to do his normal thing, just on duty, he walks by a shop and sees a little leather booklet in the shop, and, and he had a habit of, of uh, making a prayer journal every year. So he'd take a blank book and he would write on the left side the prayer he was asking for, and then on the right side when the Lord answered it and the date God would answer it. And so he was walking by, I think it was January 3rd, and so it's the beginning of the year. He's looking for a new prayer booklet, sees it in the store, and so he walks in on duty. Not for his work, but for the Lord's work. And so he walks into the store, and the little German man comes out there, and, and the German says, well, you know, what do you need? He says, I'm looking for, you know, could that book in the window? So the man brings it to him, and uh, so Walter Wilson looks at it and says, oh, this will be perfect, and gives it back to the man. and The man starts to wrap it up because he's going to make the sale. And Walter Wilson's just wondering, Lord, where are you at work? And so he makes a comment. He says, uh, do you know what I'm going to use that for? And the man says, I don't know. He says, I'm going to use it as my prayer book. And the man, in his liturgical German thinking, stops Takes it and says, this will not work for you. It's a blank book. And he says, no, 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 I'm not recitation of prayers. He says, I'm going to take this, and I'm going to pray to God needs. And then the Lord answers it, and I, and I write it down. And the man just looks at him, takes the book, wraps it up, walks around the corner, places it on the counter, and a little German man grabs Walter Wilson's collar and says, do you know God? He said, I've gone through all five boroughs, many churches, many special meetings, looking for God. Do you know God? And Walter Wilson leads him to Christ. When I'd read that as a, as a kid, I'd say, wow, Walter Wilson's a super Christian. He's got the connection down, doesn't he? Like, man, he can, he's got something special with Jesus that I, I only dream of. What I began to realize is Walter Wilson just had an accurate view of who God was. He was no more special than I. So, as I'm reading Acts chapter 9, saying, Lord, is that how you worked? You, look, look what you did with Ananias. Lord, could you do that with me? Is it possible that you're at work? After I'd finished preaching this message at a camp in West Virginia, first time I'd ever preached it, Lord's just doing a work in my heart, I, I finished my meeting in West Virginia and I'm on a plane to go to, from Charlotte, North Carolina to Denver. And I'm sitting in, in Charlotte's airport, and there have been delays and backups, and so there's a long line, and, and I'm not going to get on that plane anytime soon. And so I call my dad, and I've got him on my earbuds. I'm sitting there in the terminal. Terminal's packed, and I'm sitting there. We're just talking about the camp, talking about spiritual things. I preached on this, preached on that. God, been working in my heart about this, and Dad and I are having a great conversation. I'm not out there with tracks saying, here, 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 here. Nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying, I'm just doing normal life. And I finish the conversation because they're starting to board. Okay, Dad, i got to go. We'll, we'll talk later. Okay, they're boarding. I take my earbuds out, and there's a charger that's plugged in right next to me. And it's not mine. And the, the lady that had been sitting next to me, she's starting to get up. And so I grab the charger and said, hey, ma'am, is, is this yours? And she says, no, that's not mine. It was there when I got there. I said, okay, no problem. And she says, are, are you a pastor? And I'm, I'm not, but I knew what she was trying to get at. And so I said, yes, ma'am. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a preacher. I'm in the, in the ministry. She says, I'm sorry, I couldn't help but overhearing, which I don't know how she couldn't have helped but overhear. I was talking out loud. But uh, she says, um, She said, my heart was so stirred by some of the things you were st- saying. And uh, you were talking about God being a pursuing God, because I was explaining to my dad what I was learning. And she says, I've got a sister. And I've just been so burdened for her, and I and she starts going on. I'm thinking, wow, there, here's someone that's spiritually they're they're open, and and so I uh, my plane's starting It's getting to the end of the line, and she's all oh, I'm on the same plane, and I was okay, well let's let's talk. And and she's I grew up Catholic, went to the the parochial schools, but then you know got disillusioned with that. I went to a Southern Baptist college for undergrad. I'm thinking, wow, that's quite an eclectic past. And and so she's explaining all of this, and and oh, she can't find her ticket. She can't find where's her boarding pass. I got to get on the plane. I said, ma'am, here's a tract. Please read that if you can. I'm thinking that's about all I can do, but clearly God's at work, so maybe this will work. This is, that's great. I get on the plane, and I walk down there, and I sit in my seat. I'm in the aisle, and there's a man at the window, and I thought, well, Lord, maybe you're working here. I just want to be about. I'm not going to sit there and be like, now, sir, I want to show you something. I'm not going to sit out there and bludgeon him with the Bible. I just want to ask a question to see, could God be at work in his heart? And so I asked him a quick question. We're, we're just starting the small talk, and he's got his earbuds, and he's not really connecting there. And uh, all of a sudden, the lady I had been talking to walks up, and she smiles, and she goes, my ticket's right next to yours. And she's positioned in the seat dead next to me. And she goes, this is amazing. And I thought, this is truly amazing. And so I slide out of the seat, and she climbs in and sits there. Boy, this is just amazing, isn't it? Yes. And we, we talk a little bit longer. And uh, I'm not really sure what else to do. And I said, "Well, it's a, it's a red-eye flight, gonna be a late night, and so I'm gonna get a little bit of sleep." And so I put my earbuds in, put my pillow around my neck, tip back, and the Holy Spirit so graciously said, "Caleb, are you kidding me?" <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, you're right, Lord." <laughs> like, what am I thinking? You're, I just I'm not used to living this way. And so I take my, my pillow off of my neck and I I tapped her. I said, uh, "I said I'm sorry, I, but I cannot let you sleep until I ask you one more question." She goes, oh, good, I wanted to ask you a few more questions, too. <laughs> I said, okay, that'd be fine. And uh, so right there, I said, and I can't remember her name, but I, she was actually, she's a lawyer in Denver, and so I asked her, I said, I, I said has there ever, ever been a time when you came to realize that you were a sinner, you desperately needed Jesus Christ for your salvation, and you called on Jesus to save you. She said, well, I think maybe. So I start going, I go through the plan of salvation, and she had been brought, someone had taken her uh, to, a, to a non-denominational church where they actually preached the gospel when she was a teenager, and she said that her, the youth pastor had taken her to the side, and, had, and she had trusted Jesus Christ. But she's grown up in Catholic Catholic church, so she does not know biblical doctrine. So she's saved, it seems, but not matured at in, in any rate. And so for the next two and a half hours, she asks questions, and I'm giving her Bible help, and and we go back and forth. So I'm getting a chance to disciple her for two and a half hours, and I walk up that plane saying, wow, I just saw God at work. I felt like Ananias, the Lord, saying, hey, Caleb, um, Caleb, oh, yeah, Lord, (laughs) I'm working. Join me. Fast forward two weeks later, I'm in the city of Atlanta. I preached the Sunday and the Wednesday. I wasn't doing meetings uh, in, the, in the evenings, and so I just preached the Sunday and Wednesday, so I think it was a Tuesday, or no, it was a Wednesday morning, actually, and I'm sitting outside my camper. We're, in, we're parked in the parking lot of the church, very similar to this setup. I'm sitting there outside my camper, sitting in a camp chair, reading my Bible, and a car pulls into the parking lot, and this happens multiple times. I'm sure it happens here. People use it as a U-turn. Car pulls into the parking lot, and, uh, and they don't pull back out, and out of the corner of my eye, I noticed something strange about the car, and I looked up, and the car's tilted to one side. It's got a blown tire, and the couple standing out there by their blown tire going like this and uh, not sure what they're going to do and, and talking back and forth. And I thought, well, I can at least help them change a tire. Jesus often just ministered to people. Uh, so I'm just going to go minister and see where if the Lord might be at work. So I run up to there. I said, "Hey, what happened here? Oh man, we blew a tire. This isn't good." I said, "Well, hey, I'm a preacher. I live in that trailer over there. But can can I help you? Oh man, that'd be great. Can we borrow a cell phone? I got to get my wife to work, and I don't know. This is not." I said, "You got a spare?" And he pulls his spare out of the out of the trunk, and it's got wires poking out through the rubber everywhere. I'm thinking, he's like, "If I could just get this on." I'm thinking, "Bro, you go two miles, and we're gonna blow another tire. This is not gonna work." And uh, but, but I gotta get my wife. I said, "Look, hold on." Grab my wife. I said, Emma, can you take her to work? So she jumps in our truck and takes her off to her work. And while he and I pull the tire off, we get the tire off. And I said, We're just going to go replace this. When Emma gets back, we'll take my vehicle. We'll go replace it. So we're waiting for Emma to get back. And he, he's standing there. And I'm not really sure what to say at this point, And he just shakes his head. He goes, I just can't believe this. I said, I said, what? He's said, I just can't believe this. I said, Tell me what's going on. He goes, You're a preacher? I said, Yeah. He goes, man, I can't believe this. He's actually from Canada. He's in the music and arts, uh, entertainment industry. He's down in in the Atlanta area doing business. And he's been living in Atlanta for quite some time. And in the last year, uh, the U.S. government pulled his uh, work visa or green card, whatever it was that he had. And so he can't work in the States any longer. He said, I'm telling you, man. He said, I have always been a self-made man. He said, I grew up in the the hood in Montreal. I got myself out of my own accord. I built my business. I make money. He said, I have always fixed my problems. He said, Joelle is never discouraged. Joelle is never frustrated. If I ever have a problem, I I just fix it. He said, until this year, I can't fix anything. Everything I try, it falls apart. He said, I have never been so discouraged and so depressed as this year. He said, and my wife came to me. She's been saying this for weeks. Joelle, you need to talk to somebody. Joelle, you need to call a preacher. Joelle, she said, I'm going to find a list of churches and find a pastor to come talk to you because you need help. And every time he'd say, no, 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 no. I don't need this. And so this is the story he's telling me. He said, this morning, I was so discouraged in my home. I can't understand what's going on. And my wife tells me, Joel, you need to talk to a preacher. He said, I can't do it. They're on the drive. Joel, today, I'm going to call a church. I, I, don't, I don't need to. Boom. Tire blows. Joelle, pull over. He pulls over the very first place he can pull over into is Canaan Baptist Church. There's a preacher that's waiting for him. And by the end of that afternoon, in the church lobby, I led him to Christ. And immediately I felt pressure. Okay, I got to make sure he sticks with it. I got to make sure he's in church. I got to make sure he's discipled. And the Lord started to say, Caleb, you can trust me. I've already been at work in his life. I just gave you the privilege and the opportunity to join me in what I'm doing. That Wednesday night, I was preaching that night. He came to church that night. I couldn't believe it. That next morning, I took him out to breakfast. He and my wife and he and his wife had breakfast together. We correspond for several weeks. He was coming every Wednesday night. I think at this point, he's actually been sent back to Canada. So he's in Canada now, if I understand correctly. But I stepped back from that situation. I did not make that happen. I didn't make that up. I did not convince him to be spiritual. If I believe God is a pursuing God, I stepped into what God is already doing. Brothers and sisters, in Granville, New York, I'm not saying this because I've spent any time here. I'm saying this based upon the character of God. There's people in Granville he is working in. Would we open our eyes and simply be volunteers, be servants? Look, brothers and sisters, if you have never given the gospel to anybody, you may feel like I'm the lousiest and worst Christian in the world. Get your eyes back on Jesus and say, Lord, I'm not even a good gospeler. I'm not, I can't even soul in well. Lord, I don't even know how to give the gospel. But Lord, if you would show me where you're at work, I'll take a step of faith, and God, you just do the work. If he is a pursuing God, he's pursuing you, and he's pursuing somebody else. And he wants to put you two together. And I'll close with this. I was talking with a young man recently. And, uh, and he made the comment. He said, oh man, I missed an opportunity. I can't believe it. He's kicking himself like we've all done. Oh no, God prompted me. There was an opportunity. And I missed it. He said, somebody at work uh, brought up a, a, a spiritual question. And I completely missed the fact that they're spiritually open. I didn't get a chance to witness to him. Oh man. I said, are you going to see him at work next week? Oh, y- yeah. I said, you didn't miss an opportunity. God was simply showing you. I'm at work over here. Now you can start working. See, God wants to do that. Why? Because he is a pursuing God. One more thing to keep in mind, church family, is he's a pursuing God. If you find yourself feeling far from God, I've sinned so much. I'm so far from God. I've made too many mistakes. I'm in retirement age, and I've just messed up too much. If he is a pursuing God, then it means if you feel far from God, he is not far from you. It would change the way you pray. It would change the way you confess, and it would change the way you soul win if we believe. My Jesus, pursuing is not just what he does, it's who he is. Amen. Can I ask you all to bow your heads with me and close your eyes? I hope that this morning would be simply help us to, our eyes would be opened to a fuller, more biblical view of who my God is. If you are not saved, I don't know anybody's spiritual condition in here. If you are not saved, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, he is pursuing you. If you are a believer, I want you to know he's pursuing you too and he's pursuing people around you and he's leading you to step into their life. I don't know how the Lord may have dealt with you. There's, Certainly plenty of applications, and I don't even know if you're used to invitations, but what I would like to do is can I ask you all, with heads bowed and eyes closed, could you just stand with me? We're going to do something, maybe it's different for you, I don't know, but could we all stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're physically able, in just a moment the piano is going to play, and here's what I want to encourage you to do. If God has spoken to you about a specific area, maybe it's something you need to get right, maybe it's an area of unbelief that you need to confess, or maybe it's simply a surrender of saying, Father, if you would just show me where you're working, by your grace, I'll take a step of faith. The altar is open. You could sit back down in your seat, but I believe to take an action step based upon what God has shown you. That's humility, and that's where grace flows. So as the piano plays, if God has worked in your heart in whatever area, would you take a step of faith, sit back down in your seat, come to the altar, but you respond to the Lord, and just take time. Lay these burdens before Him. Maybe there's someone that you've been praying for for a long time and you think it's your role to get God's attention and now God would show you, no, no, I'm already at work, just join me in prayer. Maybe there's someone that you feel you are far from God, but you know that Jesus Christ who's been pursuing you, if you would but turn, humble yourself, repent, He is right there to forgive. going to play one more verse. When we begin to meditate on who our God truly is. Oh, he's so much bigger than we realize. He's so much better than we realize. Let's believe not just for what he does, but for who he is.
0: Turning back, I've decided to follow Jesus. Amen. We're all good this morning. Um, That was a great message. And uh, don't think about the hour. You'd sit there and watch a YouTube video, an extra 15 minutes, wouldn't you? Come on, guys. We'd watch an extra movie a little longer. Hey, the movie's 90 minutes or 122 minutes instead. of You know, we just keep watching it, right? And uh, preaching is where God works. And we're so thankful God used that message. What a blessing. Thank you. Uh, Aren't you thankful for that? Needed that. God is pursuing God. And, and I tell you, without doubt, I have seen God at work so much in our church in the last two, two years. And uh, there's no doubt in my mind, the really, Caleb, God's at work. Um, and, and so, so many folks have seen man, God's at work. God's at work. Drive around the town, even this week. Drove up to a business. Walked to the gentleman. Didn't know him from Adam. But we started talking. God's at work.